We are doing a very short two-part series. We began last week and we'll finish it up this week. And what we're doing is we are looking at how Paul uh, speaks of wisdom in the book of 1 Corinthians. So turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, please. We're going to be dancing all over this book, not spending a lot of time in any one particular place. But wisdom is addressed throughout the course of the whole Bible. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians as really a case study, how we see Paul expressing wisdom in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to do a, uh, a review of what we talked about last week. I'm going to kind of breeze through this, and I'll reference some of the scriptures that we looked at, but I want to ask you to turn there because we looked them all up last week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul is calling the believers, all right, this is written directly and specifically to Christians, Christ followers, in this church uh, in Corinth. He says this, I want you to agree. Number one, this is just a review. Two, he said, I want you to be of the same mind. And of the same judgment. And it's fair to ask the question, well, what is it exactly that we want, he wants us to agree upon? He wants us very simply to agree in Jesus Christ. And what we did last week was we looked at several different texts in the book of 1 Corinthians that say that wisdom, spiritual wisdom, godly wisdom, is knowledge of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 30, it says, Jesus Christ whom God has made our wisdom. So we see a connection here between the knowledge and the work of Jesus Christ equals wisdom. It says that I want you to be of the same mind. And what we define this as is having the same understanding. So it's not just agreeing on Jesus Christ, but understanding the implications of that. We see in chapter 1, verse 30, that Jesus Christ, whom God has made our wisdom, has also made Jesus Christ our righteousness. All right, there's a lot of doctrine there. Our sanctification and our redemption. So not just agreeing on the person of Jesus Christ, but a full understanding of how it impacts us and how we relate to God the Father and how we relate to each other on this earth. We looked at the end of 1 Corinthians and said that it's kind of bookend here where Paul speaks of uh, sin and the law and God and the gospel and perseverance and hope and saying that these are all pieces of wisdom that we define as Jesus Christ. And then the third piece is that we have the same judgment, which we, we are going to call the same application. How this actually works itself out in verse... Um, in chapter 15, verses 50 through 54, we see that wisdom understands that the spiritual side is ultimate over the natural. We see in chapter 15, verse 46, this, it says this, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So if we're going to have an understanding of what wisdom is, we need to understand the natural world first. And then what we do is we add to it the wisdom of the spiritual to have ultimate wisdom. We see in John chapter 3 when Jesus was having a conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a scholar and he was asking Jesus questions. Jesus said, you must first be born naturally before you can then be born again. That there must be a natural physical birth first in order for there to be then a spiritual birth. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she's speaking of the natural, saying, I need water, I need to be able to drink. And Jesus says, yes, that's true, but there's another element here. I can give you eternal water, everlasting water, adding the spiritual. So having this understanding of wisdom, that wisdom is the understanding 
of Jesus Christ, but not just Jesus Christ, having a, a full understanding of how it plays itself out and the applications thereof. Um, we need to make uh, a few more conclusions, which we talked about last week. So this was the first, uh, kind of the first point, and the second major point that we talked about last week was that wisdom, this type of spiritual wisdom, is in fact exclusive to the believer. That this spiritual wisdom that we're looking at is actually foolishness to the world. All right, we saw in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 14, uh, that Paul is interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In verse 14, he said that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're not spiritually discerned. I'm so sorry. You didn't catch the beginning of the class, but I wasn't expecting us to be in a horseshoe. So, sorry. All right. So if you're tracking with me, what Paul is saying here is that wisdom is exclusive to the believer. And we need to recognize that. Um, He says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually Discerned. In chapter 15, verse 50, 51, Paul is saying, Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. I'm telling you something that the world does not understand. I'm telling you something that only you can understand because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And then the third piece of this, um, I'm going to say that this is exclusive. It is folly to the world. And the third piece that it presents two problems to us as believers. The first problem is that understanding that spiritual wisdom is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that spiritual wisdom is exclusive to the believer, it opens up two problems. First, it opens the door for the world to disagree with us on everything. It opens the door for the world to disagree with us on everything. If, if, if spiritual wisdom is exclusive to the believer and spiritual wisdom is folly to those that don't, do not follow Christ, it, it just opens the doors for them to, to disagree with us in, in every way. Morals, ethics, work ethic. It's not, it's not a guarantee that they'll disagree, but it opens that door. The second danger, the second problem, is that because we are still on this earth and we are not in heaven yet, it means that we as Christians will continually be tempted to default to the wisdom of the world. And that is the reason why Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, I could not address you as spiritual, even though he's speaking to Christians, because you're behaving in a human way or in a natural way. Chapter 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, that they need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but rather to admonish you, which is not a fun thing to be admonished, but it is a calling back to the truth. In verse 16, he says, I urge you then to be imitators of me, Paul. Verse 17, it says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of the ways of Christ as I want to teach them everywhere in every church. So there are two problems. One, the world is against us. Two, we have a tendency to fall to the world's wisdom. So that's a a quick running through of the wisdom discussed last week. Now, what I want to do this week is say, okay, now that we have this kind of identified right here, and I'll be referring to this, um, the body of 1 Corinthians really just gives us a lot of practical examples. It says, okay, well, let's just play this out in different scenarios. Now, an example is always a good thing because an example is a fast track to understanding. We have all been in different situations, whether it's major situations at work or just simple situations in in sports, where if you just can see an example of somebody doing something, you're going to get it quicker. You know what I mean? You could uh, explain with your words to me how to um, shag. Some of you went shagging on the, on the pier. Right? Lauren likes to dance more 
than I like to dance, you know. But if you were just to audibly tell me, you know, with your right foot you do this, and your left foot you do this, and then with down from the torso you do this, but just with words, I'd kind of be like, what? <laughs> you know, tell me again. You know, there was, a, there was a point in time when I was playing soccer, I was in middle school, and it's really, it's really uh, simple, um, but I couldn't get the, the throw-in right because it has to be done a certain way. And the coach that I had when we were in practice, if you did it wrong, the whole team had to do push-ups. So, like, you were the bad guy. I remember we're in practice, you know, and I threw the ball in from out of bounds wrong. And he's like, you did it wrong. Everybody down. I'm like, oh, crap, you know. And so I'm pushing up. Everyone's, and uh, then he gave us this water break. It's the middle of summer. And I thought, I I still don't know how to do it. I don't don't know what I did wrong. Um, And so I went to an older player on the team as we're all walking over to the the drinking fountain. And I I still remember his name was Nathan Metzger. I looked up to the guy. He was like a year ahead of me, but he was a much better soccer player. And I was like, will you show it to me? And he showed it. He gave me an example. He showed it to me. Um, I want us to look at um, uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to look at examples. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under under the cloud. All right, this is speaking of the children of Israel, as they were led by the Holy Spirit, and, and he showed himself through a cloud. He says, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, really referring to spiritual wisdom like we've been discussing. And all drank the same spiritual drink. All right, this is the same reference. For they drank from the spiritual rock. Most of your translations will have uh, rock capitalized. That followed them. And the rock was Christ. All right, so this is just yet another example of saying that wisdom, spiritual wisdom, is Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them... God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples. These things took place as examples. That we need to be looking at the examples that we see in the Bible as reference points for our own pursuit of Jesus Christ and living in spiritual wisdom. So, I see in the book of 1 Corinthians... um, not one there. I'll put Lauren's name back up. Right here next to me. I'll put Lauren's number back up for us. There are four applications that we see through the book of 1 Corinthians. First is uh, <laughs> will someone show me how to spell. The first application is an attitude. If you would please flip to chapter eight, first Corinthians chapter eight. Verse one. says this, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul is getting ready to address an issue um, that was a hot topic that we don't really have to deal with today, and it's the whole idea of food offered to idols. Now, uh, before Christ came, if you were a Jew, um, you could not touch unclean things. If you did touch unclean things, and you had to go through a whole purification process, and it it made you impure, it made you unclean, and you were not allowed to participate in, in worship, which was a big deal spiritually. And so there was this stigma 
of food that would be uh, presented to idols, and then after it was presented to idols, it would kind of go back out and be offered in, in the marketplace. And so there were some people who looked at that and said, it, since it has been offered to an unclean, false god, a, a pagan god, then, then thus eating it would make me impure, and it would, it would harm their conscience. Jump down to verse 7. It's in chapter 8. It says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, okay, you see the former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, but no better if we do. Verse 9. But take care that this right, it's interesting that they use the word right, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating to an idol, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food thus offered to idols? And so by your, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ has died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. And you have sinned against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So what Paul is saying here is, listen, there are going to be situations in life that are not wrong for you to participate in. Because he says very clearly that food does not commend us to God. All right, so this is not an issue of, of concrete right and wrong. But if you, as a believer, are in the presence or around another believer who has a problem in his conscience about this, and he sees you doing what you have a right to do, you must not do it. And this takes great humility. All right? So the attitude that we're looking at here is humility. That he is saying you must suspend your rights for the sake of a weaker brother. That there are those that are around who, who struggle with things that you just don't struggle with. And you have to take something that is a right and say, you know what, for their sake, for their conscience, for their standing before God, I'm going to suspend something for their very soul. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I was trying to think through applications of where we might see this today, and I think that they're, they're really everywhere. Um, because everybody has different backgrounds, different ways that they were raised. I was raised in a very, very uh, strict, conservative background. Even so much that when I was, when I was young, uh, there were some principles taught that I think are unbiblical. Um, things like going to the movies are, are wrong. You know, rock music. Any of you grew up that way? You're wrong. Or uh, much less alcohol wrong. You know, all these things that are dogmatically wrong. Um, and there are some people out there who just disagree with me on some of those things. And I need to be considerate of that. And there are some people out there, because today is an age where we're living, that, that says the individual's rights is supreme. You know, like, hey, you don't have to agree with me here, but I'm going to drink if I want to drink. And if you don't like it, then you can go somewhere else. Or I'm going to go to this movie uh, because I've got the right, and it's just between me and Jesus, and grace, grace wins the day. All right? And what Paul is saying is that wisdom must first be humble. It must first be humble. Because we don't know what other people are struggling with all the time. Buster has said this before, but he believes that uh, to drink alcohol is not something that is uh, forbidden by Scripture. But he cautions that it can be a very dangerous road, that, it has, that, that there are people who have it genetically in their families, and uh, it, can be a, it can be a fast track of destruction. And that there are a lot of people who do not, who do not participate for the sake of other people. Um, I did student ministry for a long, long, long time. Um, you all live in the same world that I do. Drinking is a problem 
with the underaged. You know what? I'm over 21. Um, but you better believe I wasn't drinking around any students, you know? Um, because things, they see things differently and they interpret things in immature ways, you know? So there's an application here that we've got to be watching that if we want to be wise in Christ, we must first be humble. Um, if you would flip to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. I'm sorry, uh, verse 19. Paul continues with this line of thinking in humility. He says, <coughs> chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I become as one under the, the, under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside, I become as one outside, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, and to do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You can't do this without humility. You can't become weak for the weak. You can't become under the law, meaning putting restrictions on yourself, without first being humble. He is not seeking his own advantage, but he's doing it all for the sake of the gospel. I want to draw your attention back to verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Why? That I might share with them in its blessings. There's a man... He's a pastor in the Midwest somewhere. His name is Sam Storms. Godly guy, great thinker, written several books. Um, and he has said, and I heard him speak, and I'm not sure if he was quoting Jonathan Edwards or not, but he was talking on the, on the topic of joy. And he was saying that joy is not complete until it is expressed. That when you receive joy from the Lord, because of your salvation, that it is not made full, it is not made complete until it is expressed, that it cannot be kept in. And so when Paul says that he may do this for the sake of the gospel so that he may share with them in its blessings, he's really calling people to a greater level of joy, that I participate in a greater level of joy because people are drawn to the kingdom through the gospel. Not just simply, hey, so that I can get other people on my team. But he is calling people to a greater level of joy. And I think that these, these uh, questions of, of being humble and humility, we need to ask ourselves, um, wisdom is a noble thing to seek. We talked a little bit about last week how I gave the example of, of this man that I knew. I was, I, was at a, I was doing an internship at a church, and we were, all these pastors were around this big conference table and there was this doctor who was on staff in the corner and when he spoke the group just kind of went quiet but he didn't speak a whole lot and the guy I was interning under just said man you listen when Dr. Gravel speaks you listen you know you just you listen because he's just a wise man and it's a noble thing I believe for us to desire wisdom it was credited to Solomon for such um and if that is a desire for us to be wise, to be somebody that speaks wisdom into other people's lives and, and, and have this uh, ability to navigate life with true spiritual wisdom, we need to be asking ourselves, is this a pattern in my life? Is humility a pattern in my life? And for me, if I'm going to live in humility... It often starts with the way that I begin my day. Because I feel like I wake up selfish every morning. Um, and I don't wake up content, typically. Um, I wake up kind of groggy and tired. And if I'm not groggy and tired, I am uh, just thinking about the busyness 
in the complexity of my day. Um, but if I take time, if I take a few moments, spend some time in prayer, reflecting and praying on the gospel, asking myself, how does this stir my soul as I'm reading scripture? It changes the way I walk through my day. Um, so it's just a question. Is this a pattern in my life, walking in humility? Um, the second thing that we're going to look at is not an attitude, but it's an action. Let's look at um, chapter 6, please. First Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 1. says this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? For if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and before and, and that before unbelievers. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your brothers. Now this is speaking to issues in particular that have to do with financial issues because it, it addresses being defrauded. Uh, most commentators do not believe that this is referring to cases that we might put in the, in the criminal category because we see in Romans chapter 13 that God has established law uh, to deal with such things. But what Paul is addressing here is that there are believers that are at odds with each other, that are believers that are uh, fighting, that somebody has wronged somebody else. And this has broad applications. I mean, not, there's not one person in here who hasn't been wronged by another Christian. It just, it just isn't. It's part of life. Um, you've probably been wronged by people in your very community group. You've been wronged by some people in this room one day. When you get married, you will be wronged by your spouse. Uh, you've probably been wronged by your parents if they're believers. You've probably wronged your parents as a Christian. Um, and Paul is saying, listen, you're taking issues um, of conflict resolution to those outside the church to solve your problems. And he's saying, what is that about? In verse 4, it says that if... Uh, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And again, this is another mirror reflection of saying that we have, we have something that the world doesn't have. You know? The world says, if somebody wronged you, then you now have a right to do something in retaliation. Maybe it's a lawsuit. Maybe it's approaching them. Maybe it's a fight. You know? You punch me, I'm going to punch you. You're going you're gonna to undercut me at work. I can undercut you. Um, but that's not the wisdom of Jesus because what we've already established in humility, even to the point that Paul says here, why not take a loss for the kingdom? Which basically means, why don't you just forgive even if they're not seeking your forgiveness? Thankfully, we have the example of Matthew chapter 18 that says this is how you approach a brother who's wronged you. Matthew 18 walks through these different steps. You should look it up. Uh, that says if a brother has wronged you, you, you approach them. If that doesn't, then you take another brother to approach them. And it walks you through conflict resolution. But there are some times when you just need to let it go at a loss. And you know what? You can't do that without being humble, number one, and you can't do that, number two, without knowing that, that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know, that he will take care of things. 
that I have a hope that is much greater than whatever our conflict, our conflict is. I know many people, um, both, I mean, I've been at East Cooper for 15 years, and I've known many people who have said, I'm having an issue with somebody at the church, um, so I'm going to take a break for a while. It's wrong. It's just, it's sinful, you know, to say, I'm going to pull myself away from the body of Christ and not address it or not forgive. Um, I've seen it for years and years. You're hurting yourself and you're hurting the body. Because we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that you are a part of the body, and the body is part of you. And so if you're not participating in, in, within the body of Christ, uh, then you're not giving what the body needs, and you're not getting what the body gives. And so to take yourself away from it is kind of like a victory for Satan. <laughs> and so rather, approach your brother, Matthew 18, or you can just forgive at a loss. And love them in Christ. I'm calling this relationship. Now obviously this is not comprehensive on how our Christian relationships are supposed to be. But it speaks a whole lot into forgiveness. It speaks a whole lot into how the gospel can win the day if you're angry or bitter. Um... Moving on in chapter 6, it addresses sexual issues. Look at verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both and one another. I want to draw your attention to the uh, quotations all right, in this text. Verse 12, it says, quote, all things are lawful for me. Most scholars agree that this was a saying of the day. Okay? Like a, a, a saying that people, a phrase that people would, would throw out there. All things are lawful for me. But then Paul adds to it, but not all things are helpful. And then all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And then there's another quotation there in verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, and quotation. But, he says, but God is going to destroy both of them. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. The world straight up disagrees with this. This text is telling us that the body, our, your physical body, is meant for Jesus Christ. Not meant for sexual pleasure. The quote that he has in here that, the, that the, the stomach is meant for food and food is meant for the stomach. Like, hey, I have a stomach, so therefore let me feed it. And that's what food is for. Food isn't there just to look at, but it's for me to consume and to eat. So, hey, I have this body. And not only do I have this body, but I have sexual desire. So, therefore, I'm going to feed my body, and fulfill my desires because I have them. And so we see it all over the culture. Unfortunately, some inside the church that we say, hey, I have a sex drive. And so therefore, if I have the sex drive, then it must mean that I, I can get that. And he's, he's throwing caution up here and saying, hey, listen, that's not the case. He says that the body is meant for the Lord. Now, to add a personal notation here, um, as I've been reading about all this stuff that's going down with the Supreme Court, um, I've seen some great guys that I admire out there um, say things like, hey, we need to acknowledge and be thankful uh, for our sex drive. It's, it's created. It's, it's a part of of, of who we are, that it's not something that's supposed to be, oh no, look at this bad thing that I just have to battle until that day the Lord leads me to marriage. But it is something 
uh, that the Lord has designed and that we are to be thankful for. And so when we look at the context of how our actions play out in relationships, we have to recognize the fact that God in His sovereignty and through the gospel and through the spiritual wisdom that is foolishness to the world, foolishness to the world. Um, Lord, I can't remember who, I think I feel like it was some high schoolers on a mission trip couldn't believe that we weren't living together before we were married. Remember that conversation? Who was that? What trip? Just assumed. I mean, we had neighbors um, at, at uh, the house that I lived at before we were married, and, and Lauren was over there hanging out with me, and they had little kids, and uh, the little kids knew that we weren't married, but they were like, Lauren, you live here. You know, do you live here? Do you live? No. She, you know, she doesn't. And the dad was like, no, they don't, they don't live in sin. And he said that. He knew I was a pastor. Um, but the world, the, the world says, if you have a sex drive, then that must mean that you can feed it. I mean, and it, you, wisdom says, spiritual wisdom says, that those desires can be met in a much more glorious way when you follow Scripture. And I know that that's a, a widely agreed upon statement in, in this room, but we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. I was encouraged uh, as a single man because um, I found myself at places of confusion of like, why can't I find somebody? Um, and a mentor of mine really challenged me in how I was praying. Um, and to pray that the Lord would provide, um, the Lord would prepare you for that day is a, is a noble thing. And I think it's what wisdom calls us to. That we can pray, God, prepare me and provide for me a spouse. So, in relationships. The second, or the third, rather, application is... Another action, and I would like for us to flip to chapter 13, please. Verses 11 and 12. It says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child. And I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is difficult. I'm calling this action contentment. What Paul is saying here is that there was a time when he was immature. I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned with my mind like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childless ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, meaning we don't get the full picture yet. We don't see how everything works together. Things are confusing. Things fall out of line. Things, life brings us circumstances that just don't make sense. But then, he says, we will see one day face to face. Now I know in part, meaning not fully. Then, one day, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known now. That Jesus Christ knows you fully. We've heard all the verses before about He has known you when you were being knit together in your mother's womb that the day of your death is known by God, that the number of hairs on your head is known by God, and your successes and your failures and your sins are all intimately known by God. You are fully known. You are fully known. There's nothing in your past, there's nothing in your future that isn't known by Almighty God. That, that, that right now there is a 
the concrete day that you will pass. He knows what you struggle most with, and he knows where your insecurities are. But you don't know everything. You don't know what next week looks like. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. You don't know what your future family looks like. You don't know what your job looks like. You don't know what your finances look like. We make, we make plans. We act accordingly. But you don't know. And what this says is that this type of wisdom embraces the fact that you don't know and can walk forward in faith. Embraces the fact that you don't know and you won't know, but you know the one who fully knows you. That is Christian faith. That is Christian wisdom. That says we don't know and we're not supposed to know. I mean, the times in my life where I've been the most down or discouraged or leveled is when something hit me in life that I just didn't get. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand. This shouldn't be happening this way. These people have behaved wrongly. I've tried to do the right thing, or I'm trying to build myself back up or take me to the place where I once was, and I just don't understand. And I get lost, and I get burdened, and I get anchored in not knowing. And wisdom says you're not going to know and you're not supposed to know because you're not God. And wisdom says that when you can get to the place where you can embrace the fact that you're looking into a mirror dimly is when you become mature. I mean, it is a glorious day for me to dream about, to think about if I could walk through life and get leveled by something and be able to say, I don't get it, but I'm, I'm going to move forward in faith. You know? Not even, I mean, you could say, like, I wish that hadn't have happened. You know? Or it burdens and, and gives me great sorrow that that happened. But you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step forward with joy still, knowing that I don't understand, but, but Jesus has still won the day. And the tomb is still empty. And my eternity is still secure. And I'm going to live in that wisdom to be content. Jump back to chapter 7. Verse 17, 7 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call? Already circumcised, all right, this is a religious reference. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God is what really matters. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you have... But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There's a theme here in which... Themes like the Lord has assigned, the Lord has called you, in whatever condition that you are called, let him remain there, if when he received his call. And I would summarize this in the, in the, in the phrase you've probably heard before, but bloom where you're planted. And you know, just to, just to add some cultural context here, this is not referring to, when it speaks of slavery here, this is not speaking of what we think of as slavery, this is much more of an indentured servitude. Well, you are, you are bound to work for somebody until you pay that debt off. Does that sound familiar? Some of you are indentured servants now in a way because you have debt. And you're bound to it until you pay it off. You know? And he says, hey, if you have opportunity to relinquish that, you can take it. But you know what? Bloom where you're planted. You are where you're at right now, and God has a plan for you right now that you can be content. And the text goes on and speaks to the married and the unmarried and says really the same thing. 
that you are in God's providence that may not make total sense to you where God wants you to be. And that he has a plan for you there and has a purpose for you there to not only impact people where you're at, but to grow and learn things that you need to learn now where you're at. It could be your dream job or it could be a job you hate or might be an unemployed position. That, that, that you can be content where you're at and that you can learn and grow exactly where you're at. This doesn't make sense to the world. I mean, it makes sense to the world in that, hey, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and make something better than yourself. And like, hey, tomorrow is a bright new day. And uh, if, you don't wear, if you don't like where you're, you're at now, you are the captain of your own ship. You can change your destiny. So you just keep working, keep fighting, keep climbing that ladder. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, we're living for different causes here. We're living for completely different causes. And you can find contentment. It doesn't mean you have to stay in the job that you're at, but you can find contentment there. You can find contentment as a single person. You can find contentment as a married person. You can find contentment in this job, this job, and this job. That's not going to make sense to the world. But when you're content in Christ, you're content. Um, And the fourth application is a third action. Chapter 12, please. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to that same Spirit. What we see here is Paul is explaining how we, as the body of Christ, need to recognize that God uses different people in the body in different ways to meet different people. And Lauren and I were having a conversation um, about... parenting styles and how easy it is for us to sin um, and look down on other people for the way that they're handling their marriage or their their kids, you know? And, you know, and by so doing, what we're saying is we're doing it right. (laughs) You know, we're doing things, you know, the way that it should be done. But in our sin, when we, when we make those mistakes, um, we, we were asking ourselves, I wonder what other parents are thinking about us. I wonder if they're seeing in us the things that we don't see. Like, hey, you know, like their kid might be behaved, but they don't, Danny and Lauren don't seem like they uh, are that interested in us. They seem closed off. Um, I wonder why it shouldn't be that way amongst believers. And we, so we, 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 it led us down this interesting discussion to realize that different people are gifted in different ways. And different people interact in different ways. And it says here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is talking all about the body of Christ and making the connection metaphorically to a human body. It says, hey, we can't all be the hands. We can't all be the eyes. We can't all be the ears. We can't all be the feet. And there are some times in Christian circles when we find ourselves thinking that um, you know, the missionaries are the really holy people. Have you ever thought of that before? They're the ones that are really going for it, and they're, they're kind of the top tier. And there have been some godly men at this church who have pushed back on that concept and said, listen, what about those people that have the, have the God-given ability to make six figures, and they give of their income to send those people that are good at that? You know? You might not be good at missions, <laughs> But you might be good at something that makes six figures or not. And if you are part of the body, if we're all playing the role, then in Ephesians chapter 3, it says that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. So when the church is working as it should, God is showing himself to the world. 
by you doing your job and you doing your job and you doing your job and you doing your job. That we need to see that we are not supposed to all be alike in the way that we've been gifted. And if somebody doesn't have our gifts, they're not lesser. And if we look at somebody that has uh, gifts that we don't have, it doesn't mean they're better. That we're all part of the body. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Um, verse 1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially... Um, I'm sorry, I have the wrong text. Verse 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. And this last action, I'm calling the body of Christ or the church. Wisdom shows itself in the believer in how they interact with the body, how they understand how the spirit works in other people, how they're striving for the building up of the church. Uh, Flip over to verse 15, verse 33. It says, do not, be, do, do not be deceived, but bad company ruins good morals. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, we see the example of how a little bit of leaven um, affects the whole lump. You remember that part? And basically it's saying that you need to remove people who are not on board. It's not saying that you judge the unbeliever, but if there's somebody in your midst who is a believer, uh, but they have improper doctrine... Or they're living immorally and not living uh, in repentance, then you're supposed to remove them from the body because it will corrupt you. And if that's true, then the opposite is also true that we need to be around people who crave the body, that we need to be around people who want to be a part of what is going on in the body of Christ. If you're not around people who are craving the body, then we have a tendency to default into one of these two problems, which is to fall to the world's wisdom. That's the last thing we're going to look up. So, well timed. Uh, Bell, thank you. I hope that this is encouraging to you as you look and see spiritual wisdom and how we see applications throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians. First, that we must be living a humble life. Second, how it speaks into our relationships. Uh, third, how it uh, speaks into our situation that God has led us to. And fourth, the necessity of the believer to be plugged into the body. We pray for us. Father, I thank you for, once again, not just leaving us alone to wander and to come up with the best idea that we can conjure, but Father, you have given us your spoken word, Father, so that it is a guide for our life, that we can be confident in wisdom that is found through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask you to help us as we navigate life. Father, you would help all of us in this room as we navigate relationships, as we navigate desire, as we navigate contentment. Father, as we navigate our involvement in the body, that you would speak to us, that we would be Holy Spirit-led, and that we would be spiritually wise. In Jesus' name, amen.